Do you have the kind of household where you yell for people from the other room? Like, I mean, you know, those 20 steps are a lot on me. So let me just yell out instead of walking over to the next room. Robert, I need some help in the kitchen. It kind of goes like that in, in, in our house. And your hands are full and you know that you need another hand urgently and you know you know that they can hear you. <laughs> and yet, they do not come. <laughs> they do not respond. Do you have that kind of a household? Okay. <laughs> now hold that thought for a minute because I'm gonna you know, put it together with this other thought. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. And this is our waiting season. In our slow month-long walk to December 25th, when we celebrate the coming finally of our Savior, Jesus Christ. How good are you at waiting? Someone suggested to me that I introduce the theme of waiting and then just stand silent for 20 minutes <laughs> to see who would crack first. They actually didn't say that. They didn't say who would crack first. They said to give us practice in waiting. You want to? <laughs> if we did do it, it would have to be done without cheating. So we'd have to fold our hands in our laps. No cell phones. No, uh, you know, no checking other things out. We'd have to be very still, no pencil and paper, just you and your thoughts, 20 minutes of quiet and stillness. How would you do? You know, we're imagining this because I, I'm not sure we can actually <laughs> do this exercise, it, that we can handle it, and honestly, I'm not sure that I can handle it. Now we're in a sanctuary, we came to worship. One would think that silence and stillness would be such an aid to worship, and yet my thoughts fling themselves off center so easily. I long to bring them to worship, and I just remembered something I have to do the next day, and so now I'm making lists of things that have to be done, planning my day instead of focusing on God, and I have to drag my attention back, kicking and screaming, it seems. Silence, stillness, focus, waiting on God's presence, waiting for his word, waiting for his touch. And if we were to add urgency and need to the wait, if we were to be desperate for God, if we were to be calling out to him, if our hands are full and we can't possibly manage one more thing, if we need help now calling God but not getting answered, well, how good would we be at that kind of waiting? This is the kind of waiting that Advent marks. Our passage today comes from Psalm 130, verse one and two. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Out of the depths I cry. What a fantastic start to a poem. What a powerful way to start this psalm. And immediately we know it's an elemental cry, a primordial cry of distress. The depths in Old Testament poetic language stands for chaos, the sphere of Sheol, death, decay. The depths 
symbolizes the watery deep and the images of drowning in deep water. Here, in the depths, all problems are covered. The depths describe the distance between us and God, the distance that is lengthened by suffering, that is increased by the invisibility of God, that is intensified by the silence of God. The depths is where we are in trouble and alone. It's dark in the depths. It's harmful in the depths. And so we cry out to God. I cry to you, O Lord. I love that this psalm is a first person address directly to God, crying straight to God in a time of trouble. This is the kind of prayer that involves tears and snot and tissue. Please hear me. Please let me know that you hear me. Have you ever had to pray out of the depths? There are overtones in this psalm of the exodus of the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And this cry comes as devastation and destruction tighten their grip and no one but God can rescue now. But remember, remember that God turned the depths of the sea into a pathway for the slaves to walk across into freedom. So I can cry to God in the depths because even now when everything seems lost, even now God can save me. We can think of a lot of circumstances that would cover this word, the depths, that would qualify as the depths in our life. But what did the writer have in mind? Verse three, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? We learn something about the writer in this verse, what's bothering him, what's tossed him into the pits. It's his own wrongdoing. And if he started to list his sins, or worse, if God started to list them, mark them all down in a book, demand recompense for each one of them, could the writer stand before God? Could any of us? And the answer to the rhetorical question in verse three is no. None of us has any standing before God because of our sins. In such few short, this is what a poet does, in such few short words, our justifications are stripped away. I'm not as good, I mean, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. I'm not really pointing to anybody outside. I'm just kind of pointing this way. I'm not as bad as that guy over there. We tell ourselves, my sins are minor. We tell ourselves the good outweighs the bad. We tell ourselves, but these excuses topple when we say them face to face to God. We learn something about ourselves in these verses. And in verse three, but we also learn something about God too. Look what it says. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one, but the if gives us a sliver of light. Could it possibly be that for some reason God wouldn't mark our sins? Is your understanding of the character of the Old Testament God that God is exactly the one who notices and marks down our sins? That God is the one who stores up our sins, who holds on to him, that he sees what we do in secret, that he knows what we're up to, and that we, the things that we try to hide from other people, we may or may not believe in Santa making a list of people who are naughty and who are nice. But do we think of God 
being the one whose job it is to write down that list, for what possible reason could that if be there? What would make God not keep track of our sins? Verse four, but there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. That last word there is fear, but revere is a good translation of what that means, and I'll get to that in a minute. We learn something about the character of God. God's essential character is more forgiver than sin counter, which makes the beginning of the psalm all that more poignant. Since the deepest point of separation between us and God is sin, and God is at heart, in essence, a forgiver. This means that there is no place too dark that we cannot pray to God, and no sin so sinful that God cannot reach us with his forgiveness. And this essential truth about God is found in the Old Testament. Look at what's missing from this psalm. There is no mention of the sacrificial system in this psalm. The sin is too deep for that. Just a brutally honest acknowledgement face to face with God. And notice something else surprising. It's not that fear of God is driving us to repentance and crying out in prayer because we're scared of his judgment. No, fear is the outcome of meeting a forgiving God. So think about that difference between the fear before we go to God and the fear after we have gone to God. If we feared God's wrath and threw upon ourselves upon his mercy, that would be a kind of a servile fear that would lessen with forgiveness. Once we are forgiven, the fear goes away. We wouldn't have to fear him anymore because he doesn't hold our sins against us. But our verse says in verse four, there is forgiveness with you so that in order that you may be feared or revered. Forgiveness increases our fear of the Lord. That's how we know the true meaning of that Old Testament phrase, fear of the Lord. Reverence, admiration, worship is a response that comes from us after we have met our awe-inspiring, forgiving God. The fear of God points to a relationship of wonder with him. Martin Luther called this a Pauline psalm because it's a forerunner of our Christian experience of salvation by grace through faith. So have you met the Old Testament God when you've been forgiven for no reason you deserve but simply out of God's great mercy you look at God with tears in your eyes, speechless in the presence of our magnificent God of salvation. Have you ever had that experience? That is Old Testament fear of God. That fear of the Lord has filled your heart with awe. So it's this experience of crying out to God from the depths and knowing his character and longing for salvation that drives the next section of our psalm, verses five through six. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. More than those who watch for the morning. Look what the poet did there 
He repeated that so that the night would be longer, more than those who watched for them, more than those, you gotta wait all over again through that repetition. And frankly, I don't want to ha be in a position of having to wait for the morning. I don't like it, I wanna be sleeping. During those hours, I wanna be getting my full REMS. I wanna be blissfully unaware of the darkness of the night. Active waiting is so uncomfortable because we're waiting for a change that we are powerless to bring about for ourselves. And waiting at night, why is waiting at night worse? If I'm having trouble sleeping and my head is full of thoughts and it occurs to me, it, it does occur to me, why don't I worry about this stuff at 3 p.m. instead of 3 a.m. when I could do something about it, when I can sort it out, but no, at 3 p.m. I'm not that alert. I am trying not to snooze. I'm trying not to zone out, so now I'm alert at 3 a.m. Why the high alert at night? Why are thoughts so troubling at night? So who is this person who is waiting for the morning? Of course, for the psalmist, the reference is to a watchman on the walls of, or the gates of the city, posted to be alert to danger and especially the watchman who knows that danger is coming, who dreads the monsters of the night, who want re the relief, the safety of the daylight. And those last hours until dawn are excruciating. The seconds tick by so slowly. I've actually worked at night. This is how I have this experience of seconds going tick. That's about 4.30, tick, five, tick. So slow. So we can feel in this poem the straining eyes of those who watch for the morning, the anticipation, the longing. Those who watch for the morning know that rescue comes with the dawn. And once dawn breaks, once the morning light has come, the world looks entirely different. The long wait is over and now it's time for celebration and proclamation, verses seven through eight. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. And now the psalm is not individual anymore. Salvation has come to the one who cried out for the God, but it is so much salvation that one individual by themselves cannot use it all up. It's a salvation big enough for all the people. And so God has proclaimed to the community, his love is steadfast, his power to redeem is great. And the promise, the ending promise of verse eight is ours to hold on to. God will no uncertainty, God will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. So there can be no greater swing from the beginning to the end of the psalm. And since it's so short, I want to read this psalm once more all together this time and take you on that journey again from the depths of darkness in a closed up pit through the long night of waiting into the dawn of forgiveness where horizons are enlarged into proclamation and rejoicing. This is our journey of Advent. Needing and waiting on God, crying out for a savior into joy and proclamation. So Psalm 130, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? 
but there is forgiveness with you so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. And look at that promise at the end. The psalmist would have no way of knowing that the basis for redemption would be the birth of the Messiah. But the writer of Matthew certainly knew about Psalm 130. In Matthew 121, when the angel appeared to Joseph in a dream, he said, Mary will bear a son and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Matthew is commenting on the Hebrew form of Jesus, which is Jehoshua, Yeshua, meaning Yahweh, which in our passages translated Lord. Yahweh shows himself to be salvation, redemption. And since in our passage it's specifically said that forgiveness of sins is something only God can do, the angel is making a statement about the mission of Jesus and he applies an exclusively divine power to this little baby. Forgiveness is part of the rescue that we need. It's probably the biggest rescue that we need, but we will have other depths of experiences where we will need to be rescued, where we will need to cry out to God. But forgiveness gives us new life. It gives us freedom, freedom from being shackled to our sin, freedom to follow God from darkness into light. There's a, a, a piece of the training of Stephen Ministries, which is a ministry where lay people are trained to walk alongside someone else in their pain. And if someone is in the pit emotionally, we are not, the minister is not to get down into the pit with them because then both people will be stuck emotionally. So the Stephen ministers stay out of the pit and reach a hand down into the pit to help the other person out. That's kind of the visual image of what Stephen Ministries does. And that makes a lot of sense for those of us who are not saviors. And yet, look at this God who is present to us in the depths. Who got in and muddied himself, who knelt down there in the depths so that we could step on his back and get out using him for leverage. We testify to God whose presence in the depths would be ultimately expressed by Jesus' death on the cross. Our psalmist knew nothing about that. And still he is convinced that God is somehow present or within earshot. No place or circumstance is beyond the reach of God's forgiving, loving, redeeming presence and power. When we are in need, we may feel like we're hollering at God from the other room. We may feel like he's not coming, but we find out later that he's been beside us all along. 
And we can only see this looking back. Well, this is our waiting season, our month-long journey from the depths into the light. So let's journey together. Let's pray together through the suffering. When you're in a community, you never have to be alone. You never have to suffer alone. So reach out to a fellow sojourner. Ask them to pray for you and ask them what you can pray for in return. When we're waiting, it helps to have someone else anticipating, longing, hoping beside you. Because the Savior is coming. Maybe not quite yet, but redemption is on its way. That's God's promise to you. Let's pray. God of promise, you who have never once backed down on a promise, we hold you to this one, that your redemption is big enough for all of our iniquities. Help us, dear God, for those who are now journeying through, through a night time spell where they're wait, waiting and watching for you. Help us, God. Speak to us. We long for your presence. We do long for your touch. We do cry out to you, God. Touch us with your Holy Spirit. Be with us in this journey, dear God. And thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon, but if you need prayer now, please reach out to us at altabapprayer at aol.com. And again, as always, we pray God's blessings on you this week.